Einstein did say imagination is more important than knowledge because if you can't imagine something, you know, you can't you can't create it. Welcome back. Cut the frou-frou. This is part one, episode seven of a two-part episode featuring my mother. I recently went back to visit my parents to help my youngest brother run an ultramarathon. And I really wanted to sit down with my mom and dive into how she ended up being who she is because obviously it's unique and what she's doing I feel like is living this example that so many other people yearn for, maybe even strive for, and continuously kind of fail at. And I say that with love because living in accordance with your inner knowing or your inner intuition, trusting God or trusting the universe, trusting the Tao, takes a lot. And we all want to surrender. But I don't think many of us know how. And in the last episode, me and Mach talked about how surrendering is such an active process. And I wanted to talk to my mom about that. How did she go from being who she was, going to seminary, dropping out, kind of going against the grain, and succeeding at not ending up in just another pattern of rebellion? How did she succeed, now that she's 60, at really living from this middle path of enduring the lessons and the suffering that is life without becoming bitter and trying to change it and trusting that that is the process of growth, that is the process of living a life, and that's what we're all here to do. And when I was editing the episode and trying to get the sound to be really good, I just noticed my mom laughs and laughs and laughs, and her laugh is you know, listening to the recording of it and seeing the sound waves, how they register. It's just so robust and coming from such a deep place. And it comes out with zero inhibition. It's just like thwack, thwack, thwack. And I think that that's another thing that then for me is like looking at older people trying to decide like who's who's a mentor worthy figure, who's someone that I want to end up like, and then being like, well, my mom is really this wonderful person. Nobody knows about her because she's not posting on Instagram trying to be somebody. And that's another reason why I wanted to have her on the show because I think she deserves to be recognized for being who she is because, yeah, there's something there. So anyways... I hope you enjoy these two episodes. We ended up talking for two hours, so I cut them in half. Part one is kind of talking about the beginning, how she started, how she was raised, some early tragedies that really shaped her and her priorities in life 
And then part two, we get into more of the unschooling and education and haiku and qigong. So enjoy the show. Without further frou-frou, here's me and my mom. Well, mom, thanks for joining me on Cut the Frou-Frou. And since I already gave your introduction, we'll just jump right in. Do you have any... It's a pleasure to be here with you, Daniel. (laughs) In Ohio. In the living room. So the first thing I want to kind of get into is what were your earliest or most defining moments of receiving an intuitive sign or any type of, you know, experience you had growing up that helped you kind of ignited this process in yourself of starting to trust your own inner knowing of things? Well, I was thinking about that actually this morning, and um, it was it was through the example of my parents, actually. When I was about 12, 11 or 12 years old, my mom went on a retreat at the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C., and around the same time, there was this retreat group that formed um, in North Carolina, and their mission was to provide that area. It was like um, the retreat center was in Lenore, North Carolina, in the mountains, um, and it was an ecumenical group. All denominations were um, invited, um, and they provided a retreat once a month from September through May. And so this group, they provided leadership for the retreats, but they also brought in other people. Um, and then they they did the cooking and the cleaning and the dishwashing and all of the logistics and everything. But they met every Thursday night. Um, I don't think they met every week at our house, but when they did meet at our house, us kids went downstairs in the um, family room. They met upstairs in the living room, and they started each meeting with about, I don't know, it seemed like forever (laughs) as a kid, but silence. Mm -hmm. These adults would get together on Thursday nights and sit together in silence. I guess it was sort of like a Quaker meeting, you know. Um, And during that time, we had to be quiet downstairs. And then at some point, we would hear them start to talk, murmur, and then laugh. And then we knew, oh, now we can make more noise. And they would eat snacks and whatever. And so this was happening in my house. I didn't know exactly what they were doing, but I knew that it was fun. I knew that it was, um, it, it gave them life, you know. And when I was 18, which was the the age that you had to be to actually go on a retreat, I started going on retreats, and I drug your dad along with me and um, got to experience that uh, myself, um, that silence. Um, so that was, you know, so I was like 12 when... Uh, and it was different from church. We went to church every week, but this was a whole different thing. Well, it is Quaker, right? 
I mean, Quaker meetings start with silence, but then the the small, still voice within, is that a Quaker? Yeah, I believe so, and the inner light. And whoever feels led to share out of that silence, they would do that. But it's the discipline of of the silence and that listening rather than, you know, most Protestant um, churches, it's all about the preaching and the noise. <laughs> Someone who has the answer giving it to you rather than you listening for it yourself. So it makes it a, more immediate when you, you know, experience it welling up from your own depths. <laughs> Yeah, and then so I didn't think about this, but your parents, they because you guys went to church, so they were doing these retreats, which was kind of like this, my way of thinking about it, it as like this little rogue church experience <laughs> of incorporating things that they were resonating with that were outside of whatever the culturally normal, yeah. normal thing yeah. was. So they're, they were kind of pioneers relative to their parents or they were probably the weirdos (laughs) of the neighborhood in some degree. So that was then the torch instantly also was lit for you as a 12 year old. And there were in that group, there were ministers. I, I know of a Methodist minister and a Baptist minister who were part of that group at one time or another. So you know, it was through all levels of the church. It was like people seeking mm-hmm. something deeper. So then you started going on the retreats when you were 18. Was that with your parents or? Yeah, they were usually there. And um, and other members of that group that they were in, the, the retreat mission group, who I knew really well, they were like our family in mm-hmm. a way. And... Um, and whether one of them was the leader or they brought in leadership from somewhere else, um, the I, I got to see them in a way that a lot of people may not see their parents. You know, it's like as more of a uh, more we were more on the same level. We were we were experiencing this together, and I saw my parents and I saw these adults acting in ways they, you know, because we, we sat in silence, we hiked, sometimes we hiked barefooted or we hiked at night. (laughs) (laughs) We swam and played in the creek. We sang and played silly games and did artwork. And I mean, it was just a real freeing time. And then the sharing. It was a cult before they got cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, probably some people did think it was a cult. Who knows? But, um, the sharing, I think, was the the most profound, because uh, because you would you know you would meet together as a as a group, and the the leader would provide some input, or there would be a you know there would be a theme or a scripture that we were focusing on, um, and then we would we would go out into the silence, into the woods or whatever, um, and spend time with a question or with a a scripture. And then we would come back in and the people would share out of that experience. And there would be laughter and there would be tears and there would be, you know, some of these people were dealing with really serious, you know, health issues or 
you know, things with their kids or their jobs or whatever. And, and it was just this experience of everything in spite of all that, everything is okay. You know, Mm -hmm. all shall be well, as Julian of Norwich says. And, um, so there was always, you always came away from that mountain, uh, in a state of renewal and peace, mm-hmm. you know, to go back to school or, um, so I, I, I went on retreats through, through my college years. And then your dad and I went like, after we were married, we went once a month as long as we could and then until we moved away. But mm-hmm. it was a very formative experience. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, I, it's why you are the way you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all becoming clear. <laughs> um, well, my next question that I have, I'm not sure how maybe relevant I feel it to be right now, but I'm going to kind of rephrase it because there's two things. I, I guess there's kind of two things in that question that I'm just going to say in a new way. So the one, the first part of the question is in watching your parents grow and then you yourself, how was, how was life, like when life got harder or at what point in your life, and maybe you saw it in your parents or in the other people that were a part of doing that, if there was, when things got hard, did did those practices or of the silence and all of that, was that always what people came back to? Or were there times when it was like, oh, this must not be working because we are doing all of this and it's still not how we want it to be? Well, I think that, that up to a certain point, um, because my parents did end up getting divorced, as you know, but that was years later, and sometimes I look, I look at their relationship and think they probably stayed married as long as they did because mm-hmm. of of going on these retreats. But, um, and I think that part of the reason they eventually broke up was sort of even because of things that had happened to my mom in her childhood and everything, mm-hmm. just kind of were out of their control. And, and it, and, but the, the big thing that our family experienced was the death of my brother, Kirk, Mm -hmm. who you're named after, Daniel Kirk. Um, He was killed in a car accident when he was 19 years old and I was almost 21. And, um, and that devastated us in in the way that that does. He he was um, a freshman in college, and he was driving back to uh, after fall break, so he'd just barely gotten in. You know, he was just barely starting college um, when he was killed. And I do believe that my parents fell back on all of that strength in the way that they coped with his death Mm -hmm. and the way they helped us cope with his death Mm -hmm. and the way even that we conducted his funeral and his, um, the way that we buried him 
and everything. It was it was just a very authentic experience. And um, my dad said to us during that time, first my mom said to me, because I had to drive, I was at college, and they called me to tell me, and I had to drive myself home. I actually drove to Chapel Hill to pick up your dad. I had his car, and then he drove me the rest of the way home. But um, mom was like, you have an inner strength that will get you through this. Just, you know, don't lose touch with that. And then my dad said to all, he gathered all of us kids and said, the best thing to do is lean into the pain. <laughs> and we kind of joke about that now, but it's, it's the, one of the most profound things. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like the pain will wash over you like a wave. It'll go away. The best way to deal with it is just to go headlong. Don't try to avoid it. Don't try to medicate it. Don't try to change it. Let mm-hmm. it be what it is. And you'll come out the other side, and then you'll disappear again into it, but you'll keep coming out, you know. So um, I think that, yeah, to answer your question, when when times got difficult, I mean, there are day-to-day kinds of things. You lose touch, but when the rubber hits the road, it's there for you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so like the tagline to that question which was kind of more what my original question was going to be is that apart from all apart from moving away and unschooling us and choosing a um alternative lifestyle in the way that you did which we'll get into that but because we've never really talked about this but it's like this is what like this was the foot you got off on and then that's been what's kept you in that space ever since and i feel like the answer to the question is like no you've never faltered from that but you know dr- going to seminary dropping out of seminary and were there times throughout that or even you know after kirk died it's like lean into the pain but i'm sure there were days where you were just like you know, um, I don't want to, or just really angry. And what, I mean, I guess as a rebellious son is like, what's the furthest my mom ever strayed (laughs) from being wise? (laughs) Well, you know, I think really, I stayed pretty true to the course until here recently. And, and uh, turning 60 is kind of like, whoa, <laughs> um, and all that that entails. But because um, I, th- I think, you know, starting out on this path at such a young age, I think in some ways I was I was naive. I was young and I I didn't realize having grown up in that retreat sort of atmosphere uh, your dad and I both thought thought that we could go out into the world and find that in other places. And and what we found is that no, that was a really unique experience. Yeah. And we've searched, you know, we we went to seminary 
um, because we wanted we we wanted to keep going on that journey, you know, and studying theology and your dad uh, studying pastoral care to help other people sort of find that for themselves. Um, and we found we found it took us a while, but we found a we found our niche there, and and that was actually in a peacemaker group. Um, and I was thinking about that this morning. When you start when you start with this inner journey of silence and listening to the still small voice, you end up for us. It was obvious to go the justice route, you know, because you you learn to see how everything is connected and how everyone is connected. Um, and from there, we went to Koinonia to um, understand, you know, racism and how to, what to do about that. Um, and then from there, we came here uh, to Ohio. Um, but all, all throughout all of that was also this looking, looking. For for this out in the world, but also looking for a way to keep it alive within ourselves. Mm-hmm. And part of that, part of what we learned when Kirk died was there's no guarantee about anything, you know, and that really hit, that really hit us hard because we were so young. What do you mean you can die, you know, <laughs> when you're 19, you can lose your brother um, he's there one day and he's gone the next. Um, and so there's no time to waste. There's no time to mess around with, you know, we, we've got to get to the bone of life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you got to cut the frou-frou. Cut the frou-frou. Cut the freaking <laughs> frou-frou. <laughs> um, so... Uh, we wanted, we wanted, well, let, can I share something? I wanted, one of the things that came clear to me during that time of grief, you were asking, you know, were there days, there were days of panic. Like I would sit on my bed trying to read my, you know, I was in college and I'm reading this page over and over and over again. And it's like, it's not sinking in. It's like, I can't read. I can't understand this. And I, I, dashed down the hall and called my mom and said, Mom, I can't read. I can't understand anything. And she was just like, just calm down. It's just the grief. You know, you're exhausted. Your dad's only working a half day. That's all the energy he has. Just relax. It'll, you know, it's normal. Um, But the, so he, so Kirk died in, um, he died in, the fall of 81 and then in the fall of 82 I was doing my student teaching and your and then your dad and I got married that December of 82 and when I was doing my student teaching I was doing it in an English high school English class and we were reading um Our Town the play by Thornton Wilder and I was sitting at, I had a little desk in the room, and I and the other, the main teacher was teaching, and I was reading it, that part of the play about the girl that dies, Emily, and she comes back one day. The stage manager, who's sort of like God, gives her the opportunity, go back, you can go back, but don't pick a really important day, like 
your wedding day or the day your child just pick sort of an ordinary day and so the day she picked was was one of her birthdays when she was a girl and she goes back and her mom is not looking at her her mom's busy making breakfast and her dad's busy and and she's like everybody just stop we need to look at each other and she realizes they're not going to she can't change them and so she says to the stage manager I'm ready to go back, but just let me give me one more look. And she she makes this speech. Um, goodbye, world. Goodbye, Grover's Corners. Goodbye, Mama and Papa. Goodbye to clocks ticking and Mama's sunflowers and food and coffee and new iron dresses and hot baths and sleeping and waking up. Oh, Earth, you are too wonderful for anybody to realize you. Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it? Every, every minute? And the stage manager says, no. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, no. (laughs) The saints and poets, maybe. They do some. And then Emily says, okay, I'm ready to go back. And when I read that, sitting there in the classroom, I just burst into tears. I was like, this is it. Because that's what I learned when my brother died. It's like all those little things that make up a life, you know, the coffee and the sunflowers. That's what we have to pay. We have to pay attention. We have to be in the moment. And so that's sort of been for your dad and me, being in the moment and also being in balance. Um, So we sought a life where we could be in the moment as much as possible and also be balanced and for us, that meant he, you know, when you guys were little, I was a stay-at-home mom. I was home all day with you. Your dad worked all day. And that wasn't really good for anybody. So we, we sought out a life where he could work part-time, I could work part-time, and then we could both, we kind of traded you guys off. Uh, one of us could always be at home. Um, and... That was also one of the reasons we chose to homeschool, um, so that you guys could have a balanced life as well. So, I forget what your question was. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how, yeah, yeah, okay, next. (laughs) (laughs) Next question. Um, Well, so... I mean, yeah, that's really good. I mean, my questions are just, you know, yeah. kind of bones to start to chew on and see what where it goes. So kind of what you talked about, um, I kind of see some of my questions going out the window because something you said seems relevant to talk about next, and that being you didn't realize because I relate to this, you didn't realize what you had growing up or how not only unique it was or whatever, but how actually like that was kind of it. Like you were the silence and the retreats and the practices of contemplation and stuff. And then I've thought about this before and I'm sure this is what like you probably see it like this too, but then your bro- your brother dying was kind of the nail in the coffin of like solidifying all of 
that which you knew because it's like, okay, well, now you actually have, you, you don't have the choice to just say, oh, now I'm going to college and I'm just going to, you know, party or get a degree and just make a bunch of money or whatever because you were brought into the fullness of life in a way that without that, and this is what I, this is what I've seen in myself and then also other people like with doing breath work was like, people don't want to confront life in its entirety and they don't until they're kind of forced to, until life forces them to. And then from that moment onward, they're the most grateful for that tragedy in a way. And everybody else that's not there yet can like read some quote about the cracks is where the light shows through or whatever, but it's all not... You know it on a certain level, yeah. but you haven't lived it yet, yeah. And the the thing that you said about, I mean, because Dad all like leaning into the pain, like that's, Dad talked about that growing up. You know, that's such a staple thing and how, um, and then also what your mom said about there's so, there's something inside of you that, will take over. And then in that I remember, or it makes me think of the example of that when you fell out of the boat and your dad like saved you with, you know, the kind of story. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially like picked up the car (laughs) off of you. Um, So like all of those experiences or all of those stories, even just for me growing up, it's like, well, those are all things that I've actually um, just naturally been influenced by and experienced and and stuff. So it's cool to hear you talking about it as if you're not my mom or, you know, because <laughs> we've not like ever talked kind of in this kind of dynamic. So... Anyways, the two things I want to touch on is that because a lot of times we can say things and just kind of in passing. And so to go back, because this is something that I think is so, if we only talked about one thing, even we could just talk about this, is like what it means or the power of leaning into the pain without trying to do anything about it and how that's so misunderstood because you can't understand it until you go through it and it's agonizing and also the most healing thing. But most of the time we fight it and resist it. Even if we like the idea of leaning into the pain and not, and like being stoic, we're still going to be in some unconscious way in some pattern of avoidance. And again, that's the power of like a real tragedy because you're not, there's no, pattern left to implement because you're literally just devastated. Um, So there's that, which I want to like underline. And then the other thing that you said about not realizing kind of what you had and then going off into the world thinking that that would be, you'd find that elsewhere and then realizing that it's actually a lot more rare and it's been harder to find than you ever would have thought. And that's something I've experienced for sure. So then the thing I want to touch on is like you guys went to seminary and all of that. And this is 
part of what I'm so passionate about, and this is what Krishnamurti and like the Sing Sing Ming and all these different um, things talk about is like the mind gets really excited, like in your position, the mind gets really excited about there's a way, you know, and you like write it down. (laughs) Step one, (laughs) lean into the pain. (laughs) Step two, you know, trust that. Step three, practice silence. And, And then like thinking like that's a path. And Krishnamurti talks about how people say all paths lead to truth. And he's like, a path doesn't lead to truth because the truth is alive and it's always changing. A path can only lead to something that's dead. So he's like saying that all, like there's not, there is, there is not a path to truth. And then that makes me think of Osho and like, you know, the poets and mystics kind of having something that philosophers don't because philosophers are so busy philosophizing. (laughs) They're disconnect. They're not actually feeling their body in the moment. Yeah. So I think, and it's been my experience, and I guess just to have you talk a little bit about this, like going off into the world and hoping that you would find more of that and that would evolve and there would be friends and family and community and whatever the idea was. And like you said, like, you know, you being young and connected to that and also like naive and, and idealistic in way of thinking that this was just the way and like you could find that and then realizing that it's a lot harder than that. So maybe just to talk a little bit about what was hard to find it and not talking about institutions or like talking about things negatively, but it's been my experience that that's the trick is then we start to cert- we start to really look for it. And it's in that process of like, oh, I'm going to go to seminary that you actually start to disconnect from it yeah. because it's way simpler than studying, than trying to figure it out. So from your experience of that, because obviously you know, dad finished seminary and then realized he didn't want to be in that scene. Mm -hmm. And you kind of had a feeling to stop before you finished. And then you went in a direction that was kind of a right turn, even though what you thought you were moving towards was the thing, but it seems obvious that you realized it wasn't. And so what was like that kind of conflict? Well... (laughs) Um, so looking for it, looking for it in the world, looking for it at the seminary, looking for it at Koinonia, looking for it here, (laughs) um, and realizing it was there all along. (laughs) Um, I had a thought and then it just left, um, I think in the church, in this, and like at seminary, I went to seminary as long as it was sort of, you know, feeding my soul and it was fun and I was learning. You know, I was I was taking classes in Christian, uh, in church history and the languages and um, the philosophy and everything. When it got to the taking the classes in church administration. And it was like, eh, 
because I'm not in this for a career. I'm in it to, to, you know, find this thing mm-hmm. and to, it, it eventually started to feel like I was sacrificing my soul rather than feeding my soul. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I had a conflict with a, with a professor and then I, um, also, it was like I wasn't excited about the classes that were looming ahead of me. And so I decided to take a semester, take a J term off the January term. I'm just going to, I'm not going to take a class. I'm going to give myself time to think. And do, do I still want to do this? And I spent that whole January <laughs> painting the woodwork. The house that we lived in had these windows with the little diamond shapes mullioned windows, I think it's called, really intricate painting and not getting on the glass. I just sat like in the windowsill painting. And I look back on that now and think, well, that was what I needed to do. It was like totally different from using my brain to, you know, write papers Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, But but I, I didn't think, essentially. I just did this sort of meditative painting and I got to the end of that J term, and I was like, okay, I'll go back. But I went out to, to breakfast with my good friend Janine, and um, she, just, she just asked, well, do you want to go back? And, and with her asking that question, I realized, no, I don't want to go back, and I don't have to go back. And I got more and more excited, and I, you know, talking to her, and then it was like the next day I was drying my hair. I remember the I get a lot of good thoughts while I'm blow drying my hair. And I thought, I'm not going back. I don't mm-hmm. have to. I start and I and that was going against every you know all of my upbringing of you know if you're going to do something right you know if you're going to do something do it right and if something is worth doing it's worth doing well and you you just hang in there and finish. It's like nope. And it was. It was the scariest thing that I ever did, but it was also the most freeing thing. And it was like, yeah, like you said, I just sort of did an about face. I was also feeling really ready to start a family. Your dad still had a little bit more left. So I just, I took a part-time job at our church. I, I was um, um, taking care of children in an after-school program. I had been doing that while I was still taking classes. Um, so I worked part-time, and I just kind of gave myself a break. Um, and then right after your dad graduated is when we started a family of our own. But um, and now I'm kind of losing track of your original question. Well, just the where you where you started to kind of go inward essentially of like realizing you didn't want the degree. Yeah. Cause it's like this thing of people or obviously speaking for myself, it's like, all right, I'm going to do this. And then, you know, the next thing you know, you, you start with an original thing that's connected to something, mm-hmm. but then you get swept up by the outside world mm-hmm. and comparing yourself and, competing and trying to make your parents proud or, you know, just all yeah. of the things are geared that way. And it's all, you know, whether it's fear driven, like I have to make enough money, like a lot of people in your situation, 
or it's just easy to imagine, like, if you want to have a family, well, you got to make a lot of money, so you yeah. better finish. And I think a lot of people just buckle down and... Or you might need this later on. You never know. <clears throat> you never know what you might get into later yeah. or just or just to have it. But see, part of the reason I was getting that degree <clears throat> was just to have it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I have an MDiv. I'm a master of divinity. <laughs> And, and then it's like when you have something like that, a degree, especially a, like a master's or, you know, a doctorate or whatever, it's like this is who I am and I don't have to explain myself. Mm-hmm. All you need to know about me is that I'm a master of divinity. <laughs> and um, it just having that, it's, you know, it's, it w- I would have had my name, Holly Rainwater, comma, M div, and that would give me credibility. And and part of my, it's you know it's all a process of letting go. And so I had to let go of that. And I felt, and maybe that was naive too, but I felt like in some ways it would be good for me to do that because I could see how I was clutching after that. Mm-hmm. And. So I, in those days, I thought uh, instead of an MDiv, I'm going to put after my name, C-O-G, Child of God, or <laughs> COG. <laughs> I'm just a COG and a cosmic wheel, you know? Um, and and I, don't, I still don't have to explain myself, yeah. you know, even without the degree. And I even bought myself a, quote, class ring, you know, because I wasn't going to get a ring, because uh, I didn't finish, I bought myself, it was one of those puzzle rings, um, and I bought it from this third world. My, our friends had this uh, covenant crafts. It was a third world craft, you know, where the money goes back to the people who actually make the objects. Um, hammered silver, and it fits together as a puzzle, but it's like five different rings, mm-hmm. and you can take it apart and then put it back together. Originally, they were wedding rings uh, with not such a good story behind it. But anyway, because for in order for me to make this decision and to earn this ring, I first had to fall apart. I came apart, and then I was able to put myself back together according to my own definition of what that meant, which flew in the face. And... You know, I don't know my parents. I found out later that my dad was really upset and angry with me for doing, for dropping out. Um, And my mom was, I know my mom was more, probably more heartbroken because she really wanted me to be a minister, you know, to be a a woman in ministry, uh, to fulfill her, probably her own thing that she wasn't ever able to do. But it was like, nope, that's, it's not, that's not, because I, you guys taught me to <laughs> to listen to the still small voice, yeah. and that's what I've done. So, yeah. well, so my next string of questions, and this is a good thing. I feel like that I want to say them differently because there's more nuance here. But um, you know, starting on the path, obviously, there's not a path. Mm-hmm. And I really feel that way. Like it's it's to 
it's not that there's not a path, but the path is not what we define as a path. Mm -hmm. And so realizing that the path then is kind of the unknown or the unknowable combination of phenomena that is our thing that is yet to be experienced. And that's why we're here. Like, so in that regard, it's the most exciting, you know, there's, there's no cheat codes at all. Like it's completely the utmost, like, wow. Um, so in that way, I think like what I, I've definitely done this to a degree, but I also credit the fact that I haven't done it, um, as I haven't, not that it's wasting time, but I haven't wasted as much time as I could have chasing these different things. But obviously you can't, just be told, oh, don't bother doing that because it's a waste of time. Like you have to do it and realize that all for yourself. So in that way, it's like, I think what I want to zoom in on is like you were kind of connected to the voice within so early on. And then what are you going to do with your life? So then you go to seminary, end up going to seminary, and then you realize that this is actually another trap of disconnecting myself through endeavoring to connect. But what you actually need to do, which is a very like um, counterculture thing or a very like rebellious thing, is to empty yourself out more, knowing that to fill yourself up with more philosophies and ideas about things, it doesn't actually bring you, doesn't actually take you anywhere. So that being a hard decision, because everything that's going on around you is obviously society, which is competition and comparison and all of the mind. And then your mind is convinced because it's being conditioned and, you know, it's not that it's brainwashed in a negative way, but like when everything on the outside world is telling you one thing and it's conflicting with that still small voice within, you're probably not going to listen to that voice because you don't have as much reason to trust it because it's not like you can't go to brunch with it in the way <laughs> that you can, you know. And the way I think about that or the way I talk about it is like the five senses and the mind wants proof, but it wants proof based off of what the five senses can confirm. But our five senses only pick up the light spectrum of, you know, quantum physics. It's like not even a sliver of this giant spectrum of information and reality. So for you to be actually trusting that feeling is an act of is like a revolutionary thing and i think what i'm wanting to ask you in all of this because it's like you had resistance to going back but it wasn't like resistance or this is the question like oh you were resistant what were you resistant to if you were resistant to anything or was there just intuition and it was just such a 
it was a good feeling to say yes to what you did say yes to. Could you yeah. talk a little bit about that? When you say resistance, resistance to dropping out? or Resistance, resistance to, to going. Or, I mean, both. You may, you, maybe you had resistance to dropping out because you were afraid of what people would think, but you had resistance to going because you knew that's not what you needed to do. For myself. Yeah. Well, and part of that was just, like, looking at myself. It's like I was, I was entering into a, you know, looking back on it, I, it was a de- sort of a depression um, where I, I cried a lot. And I had um, stomach issues, like, uh, I don't know that I had an ulcer, but I had, you know, like pain. I had stomach aches. It's like when a little kid doesn't want to go to school and you get a, you get a stomach ache. And I could just see myself physically, you know, how my body was responding to all of this. And then um, also, like I said, my soul, you know, I just felt like I was just so sad all the time. And, um, and you weren't doing, you weren't doing any, like you were just feeling that, like you obviously weren't, I mean, a lot of people in that situation, it's like they would nowadays, it's like they would, you know, go to a doctor and get on antidepressants or if they're at college, they would be drinking a lot or something. Yeah. No, it wasn't anything like that. And, um, I don't know, maybe if I, if I continued to push through, I would have ended up, you know, I mean, cause people did, this was in the, this was in the early and mid, early to mid eighties. Um, so people were, we, you know, um, medication for depression and so forth, but it was just, it was just a sadness. I, your dad and I went on it. We would take, we decided we would take a weekends, like one weekend a semester. We would just go away somewhere. And we, so we had gone away and, um, and I cried the whole time because <laughs> I didn't want to go back. You know, we were staying in this inn and uh, I was like, I don't want to go back. I'm just, I was, I was sad as soon as I got there because I was already <laughs> dreading going back. Um, and it's like, this isn't right. <laughs> this isn't the way I want to live my life. Um, but, and so I took that break, like I said, you know, I took that J term off and that, that was acceptable. People did that, you know? Um, and it's like, okay, I've painted this window. I'm ready to go back until, you know, my friend who was, and she's now a therapist. So she was already, you know, good at this kind of her own intuition or whatever. It's like, I don't think you're ready. I don't think that's really, you know, so, but she didn't say that. She just asked me the question. It was like, oh, you know, you're right. I I don't want to go back. Um, But once I made that decision, when I was blowing my hair dry, it was like this dark cloud lifted and I could see because it took me out of that race, that, that pressure, you know, that to succeed, to, um, you know, to climb whatever ladder, um, I'm just out of that equation. All of that is now irrelevant, and I don't have to worry about that anymore. And so, I mean, I, you know, all my life I've joked about how I'm a seminary dropout, but, um, 
deep down, I don't, I don't, well, I'm in, I'm in good company because I've (laughs) I've run into other people that I admire who have also dropped out of seminary. And then when I, and it was, I was just now remembering this, a good friend of mine who was in the PhD program, after I dropped out, he, he just said to me, we we had a party at our house one night and he, as they, as he was leaving, he said, I really admire you, you know, for what you've done. He said, there's a part of me that wishes I could do that too, but I'm too far in, you know? And, and so that made me feel really good on the one hand, but then after they, after everybody left, I went in and finished off, (laughs) finished eating all the brownies. (laughs) You know, there was <laughs> there was that part of me that was just in a, you know yeah. in a panic um, because I've I've just I've just lost that identity you know as a seminary student or whatever. So the resistance, I mean, one thing about it, and this is something that you and I talked about yesterday, and that that experience I had on the retreats when I, and there, and that was, it actually might've been around that same time when I was trying to, I, I know that I was in a state of trying to discern, trying to make a decision about something big. And, um, I was on a retreat cause your dad and I would go back to North Carolina, even when we were in seminary for retreats. And I went out that day into the silence, into the woods, looking for an answer, and I didn't, I didn't get one. And I came back to the retreat center, back to the retreat house, and the leader was John Burgundine, and he had put on a John Michael Talbot album, and John Michael Talbot was singing his song about um, consider the lilies and the birds and how they don't toil and, you know, and and then the you know the the punchline of that <laughs> the uh, the main sentiment there is um, seek first the kingdom of God, and then everything else will fall into place. And and it was like oh yeah you know I don't really have to worry about all of this other stuff even this decision that feels so monumental. The way to get to that decision is to go within, seek the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, not being heaven, not even, it's like this um, other way of being in the world where you see how things are connected rather than how things are separate. Um, And so at various times throughout my life, I get reminded of that, um, sort of that unitive mind of, 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 again, like even in the, even in the, you know, the grief for my brother, it's like this underlying feeling that all is, all is well. Because the dark and the light have to come together, you know, the in and the on that, to make the whole and um, and that's something I've experienced, but also something I have to keep keep reminding myself of. Yeah. Well, so to kind of um, put a bow on that 
whole part of your life and then to fast forward to homeschooling and stuff, but to finish all that by, or the segue for me is like, you were, you were following everything that made sense. And then you started to, as you started to near the crux of like getting this prestigious title of being a master of divinity, (laughs) um, getting a, um, becoming a, getting your master or, or or some, you know, some Harry Potter title. You're about to become Dumbledore's <laughs> assistant. Um, you realize that that was actually not what it appeared to be, but you didn't know. You didn't exactly know. It wasn't like, oh, it's not what it appears to be because it's this. And I thought it was that. It was like this whole tumultuous thing. You had physical man, like physical symptoms of illness. And I think a lot of people push through that because of the pressure to, of like, you have to finish at all costs. You have to succeed. So then it gets a lot worse. But to me, it's like listening to you. It's like you were just crying. You let yourself cry. You had stomach pains. Like the worst thing you ever did was like eat a tray of brownies. <laughs> you know? know. And because of that, you were, and I think, you know, because of the way you were raised, or, you know, being 12 years old, listening to your parents, doing starting the meeting in silence, and then, like, being into that from the beginning, you naturally had a process with yourself of how to kind of empty out and not respond with creating more drama and yeah. reaction patterns that just creates more confusion. So because of that, you suffered, but it was the suffering that was showing you the next path. And so the way I think about it, and this is something that Kendra has talked about too, is like the intuition, there's resistance. And sometimes resistance is somehow connected to intuition, we think, because we're resisting something and we think the resistance is connected to our intuition of like, we shouldn't do that because we know better. But... To me, it's much more simple of like resistance is the mind and intuition is the soul. And the mind resists the soul because the soul is this unfathomable well of death and rebirth, Rebirth. but all of it. And the mind wants what it wants and when tries to survive at all costs. So most of the time in that situation, people get more and more resistant and they get more and more sick you know, they get more and more constipated, like they're holding on <laughs> yeah. and they have all these issues, but all those issues is a part of the way that their soul is trying to communicate with them. And so if they have the practice or if you can, at, starting earlier on, you don't suffer unnecessary, like life is suffering, but you don't have to suffer an unnecessary amount because you only have to suffer the amount that you need that's actually part of why your life's so amazing. So you let yourself just fall apart and then trusted like the unknown, essentially. Yeah. So this leads me to then thinking about, well, so then you guys move to Cornania, you know, live in that community and work on that farm and all of that. And then jumping ahead to then moving to Ohio and so essentially it's like you leave academia 
in, in the way that we just talked about, following your intuition. And then, and again, maybe because I just had a lapse in my own brain, you were, because you weren't resisting, like because you were open to just listen and not forcing a construct onto the situation, you suffered, but you quickly got the message that yes. the suffering was helping you get into contact with. And so then it was actually, it's like easy um, to, to reconnect with your intuition and to keep going. And you see how the resistance in the form, like the, the physical manifestation of the resistance in the stomach aches and all of that, you see how the resistance's purpose is to help you, is like to help force you to listen. Right. And I think about that anytime I get sick, it's like, I'll be a better person. Like if you're, (laughs) if you have the flu so bad, you're just like vomiting. It's like, I will, like I repent, you know, like I'll, (laughs) if I, if only I could just stand (laughs) up right now, you know, like everything gets so reset. So anyways, so for your life, to unfold from there, what you're practicing is all you know what is the only thing left you know to do, which is uncharted. But the essence of it is to trust the unknown, essentially, mm-hmm. and to slow down and listen to what's happening as it all unfolds, because the only way to stay on this path that's not a path path, (laughs) is to respond in in relationship to what's actually happening happening and not to respond to the smoke and mirror mental projections of what you're afraid is going to happen and what you're trying to do to avoid that thing that you're afraid of yeah so i want to talk a little bit about unschooling and how that seems to be like whatever ways in which I benefited from that, it was almost, it could, talking about you, it could very simply be seen as like you had kids just for the sake of practicing <laughs> an even more extreme <laughs> kung fu of that trusting yeah. because then you had... It takes it to a whole other level. <laughs> yeah. So that's it for part one. Part two is coming out shortly. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get an email notification for when new episodes are dropped. So in the meantime, enjoy yourself. Part two, we get into unschooling, raising kids, haiku, and qigong, and some other things. See you then. Thanks for listening. Thanks to mom.